The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this morning. Glad that you're here with us and uh, participating. All right, very well. Let's uh, turn our thoughts then to where we were last week. And that is, uh, I just want to finish up the last two points of the uh, message that I started, which was differences between Protestant and Catholic doctrine. And we're answering the question, is there really a difference between the, the two systems of thought? And indeed, there are very great differences uh, in between them. And the strategy that I used last time was really to give some quotations uh, about the uh, Catholic system of doctrine and also mention some of their statements opposed to our belief system. So if nothing else, we can see that the uh, Catholic faith, at least the official version of it now, that's what I'm talking about, uh, does think there's a difference. Of course, we agree. But uh, on their testimony alone, we could find that uh, to be the case. So we started by looking at the Catholic teaching magisterium and the idea of scripture plus tradition on the one hand so there's kind of a threefold authority system tradition present teaching of the church uh, and then uh, the Bible versus our view of scripture alone being the word of God so we started with that we then looked at the question of how justification is obtained in the Catholic belief system and how it is obtained in our uh, system of our understanding of Scripture. And of course, uh, we are trying to hew as closely to Scripture as possible. We then dealt with the, the uh, difficult passage in James chapter 2, you'll recall. This is under number 3, if you're augmenting your notes from last time. And uh, we addressed the question of how is it that James can say justification is by works when Paul makes it very clear that it's not. And we saw that the two are not opposed to one another, but they're fighting uh, slightly different battles. Paul fighting the battle against those who are legalist and say you have to, have to do good works in order to obtain salvation. James addressing the error of dead orthodoxy is saying, hey, uh, you can't just say with your mouth that you have faith. You have to sh- it has to be shown with works. It has to be real. It has to be uh, something that has actually transformed your life. And so we said that Paul teaches that justification comes apart from works that might be done before salvation. James teaches that works are necessary to justification in that they follow and validate that justification. Paul asks how a person could be justified and answers by faith alone. James asks really how can we know that our faith is real and he answers the kind of faith that is genuinely saving. Faith is that faith which works. So there's really no contradiction between them. But if you take one in isolation from the other, you can get kind of messed up. If you say, look, you have to have works in order to be justified and then you import that into initial justification, you've got an error. But on the other hand, if you take what Paul is teaching and say, well, justification has no implication or no attachment to works at all, then you end up with what's called the free grace or easy believism error, which is that, you know, just 
say just say you believe the facts of the gospel and poof, everything's good. Don't worry about your works. There's nothing to concern with there. Somebody can make a profession of faith, live like a demon, and they're still going to be saved. That's an that's a equally serious error, I hope you agree, to the the first one where you know we're always oh well we can't we could never think about having salvation come by works, of course. But we ought to also say we can never ponder having salvation that's apart from works. The faith, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves, as was commonly said, is never in the end alone. It always is coupled with good works. Then we consider the question of Catholic justification versus Protestant justification as far as whether it's a point or a process. For us, it's clearly a point. God justifies the sinner. For a Catholic view, uh, the, the teaching of the church is if you, if you believe that, basically, or anathema, and they say that justification is a point event and a process, that it has to be uh, continually built upon or added to or grown and it lends as a result of that. And how is that done? It's done by the sacraments, which we'll look at in a moment. And what does it do to the believer? Just exactly what it did to the young man to whom I spoke on... What day was that? Tuesday? It was Tuesday. The young fellow I spoke to uh, I, rem- I met him before. I knew that he had grown up as a Catholic. I asked him the question I would always ask a Catholic eventually in the conversation, are you sure that you are going to be saved? Are you sure that you are okay with the Lord? No. No, quote, good Catholic can ever answer that question in the affirmative. Now, we understand that that you know we want to be humble. We, we don't take like our state of grace, you know, we're saved and we, we, we boast about it or something like that. That's not our mindset whatsoever. But we believe the Scripture teaches us we can know if we're born again. 1 John 5.13 tells us that He's written these things that to us that believe in the name of the Son of God that we might know that we have eternal life. Now, again, that verse isn't to be taken in isolation. It is the capstone of the whole First book of First John. I've written these things, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and the first part of 5, so that you can know. In other words, do you pass the tests in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5? If you do, then you can know. If you don't, then you can. Um, so he's trying to help us to develop a biblically-based assurance of, of salvation. Um, but justification is not a... Process. It's not a process. And as a result, we can have certainty as to whether we have been justified. We looked at, fifthly, the Catholic Eucharist versus the Lord's table. The difference there is transubstantiation on the one hand versus the memorial or symbolic view. And I know I'm oversimplifying that purposefully because uh, we don't take a consubstantiation view or... Um, we take the basically what was the Zwingli view in the in the Reformation, that of of the memorial or symbolic significance of the table. I think we're familiar enough with that. We know that the elements don't transmute into the body and blood of Christ. That is not an appropriate view to take from Scripture. And then uh, six, we looked at 
the priesthood. On the one hand, a very structured priesthood on the Catholic side of the ledger versus in the Protestant church and our church, every believer is a priest. Every believer has that ability to go to God through Christ directly, not through a human uh, mediator. Now, number seven, new today, that is Catholic veneration of saints and worship of Mary. And on the Protestant side, I don't say anything because we don't have anything like that. <laughs> okay, So it's not like we can say this source of authority versus this source of authority. When it would come to you know venerating the saints or worshiping Mary, offering whatever you whatever you know spin you put on the word worship uh, toward Mary, we don't have any of that in our uh, doctrinal system. Catholics place uh, saints, which I call dead super Christians, on a pedestal, and the treatment they give to Mary is basically worship as well. So you'll see, uh, you know these different saints for different things and there are little statues for them and maybe you know one for your home and one for you know um, health and, and different ones I don't even pay attention to all that stuff but it, in, in the end it's basically idolatry okay basically idolatry again no matter what spin you put on it that's what it ends up being Mary is called by some the co-mediatrix, co meaning with or together, and uh, that means really the co-redeemer with Christ. Mary is claimed to be sinless by virtue of what's called the Immaculate Conception. Many people think that the Immaculate Conception has to do with the virgin birth of Christ. That's not actually what they believe. They believe the Immaculate Conception has to do with Mary's conception, answering to them the question, how did Mary not pass sin to Christ? Well, because she didn't get it herself. So they move the miracle back one generation from Jesus' miraculous conception. They push it back to her supposed miraculous conception, so that she can be protected from original sin, thus not passing the original sin to, to Jesus. Okay? Uh, there are other parts of this doctrine, I mean, connected to this, you know, Mary's perpetual virginity, that she never had any other children, which simply cannot be sustained on the basis of biblical witness. Uh, the Catholics had jumped through all kinds of hoops to make Jesus' brothers and sisters be cousins, or something like that. Um, so, Mary is claimed to be sinless. Uh, Mary is claimed to be the mother of God. And some even consider her to be the wife of God, having born the Son of God in a very carnal and naturalistic kind of way. And thus, she's the mother of the church and all believers. And uh, in addition, if you pray to Mary, you know that's uh, Mary as the mother of Christ has a special favor with her son, and so she can kind of get things done maybe better than if you pray yourself to him. Protestants, of course, do not speak of saints other than speaking of believers in Christ. 
If you look at, say, Romans 1.7, Paul wrote to all who are in Rome, Beloved of God, called saints, or called to be saints, my text supplies. Very uh, critical um, statement. You have it in several places too. I mean, uh, you can see it in uh, Romans 8.27. He who... Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's talking about you people. Well, he's talking about Christians in Rome, but I mean, by extension, it's you, it's us, it's anybody who is a believer. We have been sanctified or sanctified is the word. You know, it's from hagiazo, hagiazmas, the word to make holy, to set apart. That's what we are as Christian people set apart. Romans 12 and verse 13 says one of the kind of requirements of behaving like a believer is we distribute to the needs of the saints. Those aren't dead super Christians because they don't need anything. It's those Christians who are alive and maybe have a shortfall or lost their job or some health issue or something like that. <clears throat> Romans 15 25, Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain, a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. 15.31, That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Chapter 16, verse 2. You see what I'm doing? I'm just piling up references to show you that the Apostle Paul considered saints to be living Christians to whom he wrote. He says that you, uh, that you may receive her, speaking of uh, uh, Phoebe, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. 16.15 Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. There are bunches of these. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 Paul's writing to saints there, and those saints were in a little rough shape, if you remember. Corinthian church was not exactly the model of good behaving uh, Christian practice. And so, that's a clear statement. I think that there are saints who aren't perfect, but they are still saints. They have been set apart for the Lord and for His work. So, we do not have anything like prayer to Mary or prayer to dead Christians or prayer for dead people to try to get them out of uh, purgatory or whatever. That's a whole other thing we did. I haven't even put in here. I can put this as another subsection in our notes, uh, the doctrine of purgatory, that there's, uh, there's hell and there's purgatory and there's heaven. And if you're not quite good enough to go here, you go to purgatory and kind of get you know, some sins burned off for a while. And then you can escape, or you can be prayed out, or you can indulgences can be given, and you can be sprung out of a purgatory. So, um, finally, number eight, the view of the sacraments. The view of the sacraments. So, we do not have 
sacraments. You almost never will hear me say that word unless it's in this context. Sacraments um, are operations, the Catholics believe, in which, or rituals in which supernatural divine grace is imparted to the participant. So, what, we, what they call sacraments, we would call ordinances, and we have two, you know those, the Lord's table and baptism, or maybe I could put them in the other order, baptism first and then the ongoing uh, one of, of, of uh, the Lord's table. These do not convey special grace to the participant. There's no um, you know, spiritual or miracle that happens in those events. They are memorials looking back. They are um, symbols of what has happened to us in our Christian life and they are also forward-looking. Baptism looks forward to resurrection, doesn't it? And the Lord's table looks forward to what? The Lord's return because He's going to participate. He's going to share in the fruit of the vine not until, remember He said, I, I do so anew with you in the kingdom of God. And Paul said that we celebrate the Lord's table, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So those, so this, the ordinances, even though they're not sacraments, they're not nothing. They are important. They look back, they speak of the present, and they look forward. All three things in both, in both ordinances. But the Catholic view is that the sacraments actually convey grace. You must be baptized to be saved. You must participate in the Eucharist to be saved. You must have any ordinance that apply or any sacrament that applies to you in order to to be in good standing with God. So they have seven of them, I think, by my count. Seven are baptism, the Eucharist, which are the two we've talked about, confirmation, very important for them, ordination, or what they call holy orders. That's for a priest or other official in the church. Then there's marriage. That's a sacrament. Then there's extreme unction, or which is called uh, last rites or anointing for the dead. or Not the dead, but the almost dead, the people who are dying. And then the last one is one that all Catholics must participate in, and it's penance. Penance. So you must do penance. I'm trying to remember back to my church uh, history and historical theology class. Penance consists of a number of elements. Uh, Contrition. Confession. I had to memorize this in seminary. uh, So I'm glad I could dredge it back up again. Contrition. Confession. Satisfaction and absolution. So you must exhibit contrition over your sin. You must make confession over that sin. How? To a priest. You must make satisfaction. So whatever the priest tells you to do to make that sin right, maybe it's restitution, maybe it's you know, a certain number of our fathers and Hail Marys and whatever. And then there's absolution where the priest declares that you are absolved, that you are cleansed from that sin. That's penance. So, that's uh, sacraments. Obviously, to go back to our initial question, there are massive differences between our belief systems. The Reformation 
see, some people today in the ecumenical mindset want to say, look, everybody's okay. Multiple ways to God. Everybody's going to be cool. Let's not fuss about these little differences. That's not the case. Okay? The, the differences are significant. Even on the testimony of the Catholics themselves, we believe likewise they're significant. Um, and what we're saying is these are exclusive truth claims. You, can, you either believe justification is by faith alone or you don't. You either believe uh, in the ordinances or the sacraments. You can't, you can't, take both, well, you can't say both are correct. Uh, you, you, you believe that Christ died for sinners and His death is completely satisfactory for the wrath of God or you don't. And so, yes, we have exclusive truth claims. Every religion has that. And that's just the way that it is, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question for those of you that couldn't hear was about a priest in Detroit whose own baptism way back, I guess, or some, 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 some time in the past was not done with the correct liturgy, was not done with the correct wording uh, or declaration at the baptism. And so then the question is, so does that invalidate all the things that he's done since then, all the marriages, all the sacraments, all the whatever, you know, to invalidate all of that stuff. And uh, so, first part of the question, did I hear that story? No, I did not. Second part of the question, uh, does it show something about their view of the sacraments? And my answer is, I, I do believe that it does show something about their mindset. If there's even a question that... You know, they didn't say exactly the right words or in the right order or the right or include just every little bit, then that shows that they do hold to this sacramental view and they say, uh oh, maybe we didn't convey, maybe God's grace wasn't conveyed because the officiating priest at that baptism didn't do it right, so the grace wasn't conveyed, so then the man who was ministering for the, all the years after that wasn't able to actually do so in a valid manner. So it does show this sacramental view that we've just talked about. Um, I've answered that situation from our side of the ledger this way. If you were baptized by a pastor who ended up being an apostate, kind of a similar situation, would you necessary would it be necessary for you to be baptized again? Or is it valid for you to be baptized by somebody other than a pastor? Let's say baptism day comes and I'm sick. So the deacons baptize you. Is that a lesser baptism? Not at all. That's not at all. So if a, if a person who turns out to be a non-Christian has officiated at your baptism, does that change the fact that you made a public testimony of your faith before the people that were there? No, it doesn't change that at all. Uh, does it change your belief about baptism and about you know the Lord and all that? No, it doesn't change that. Or if the person 
uh, is not a pastor. You know, the pastor's absent, sick that day, the deacons baptize you, or some other people in the church officiate at your baptism. Does that change? No, it doesn't change it at all. Because we don't have a sacramental view of it, it's not magic. So if you don't say the proper incantation, it doesn't change the reality of what has happened. You notice when we did our baptism, I don't, I don't trouble myself with saying the exact same formula every time. I say similar words. I certainly want to say we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to make sure people know we're not baptizing in the name of Jesus only because that's become an issue in, uh, with oneness Pentecostals. But uh, with one of our brothers, I said, I said that and then we had some uh, shifting around to do and stuff. And then I, I mentioned that we would baptize him in the name of the triune God, which was a shorthand form of saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like I did a moment ago or a moment earlier. Um, it doesn't change anything. Uh, God is not displeased with that. Uh, there's no formula given in Scripture for that. Uh, God doesn't micromanage us like that. So... A uh, very interesting question, which I think does expose the difference in viewpoints. So, unfortunately, um, you know, if I if I were to put myself fully into their mindset, then I would say, look, forget about it for that priest. Just let him go on. It's no big deal. But of course, when you're administering the doctrine and the practice of the Catholic Church, the whole thing is invalid. <laughs> so I can't offer comfort. You know, that way. I mean, they're offering a baptism by which they say, okay, so let me back up and say, okay, now if you're, if you're baptized as an adult in a Catholic church, not as a child, that, that's the usual case. But let's say you come to conversion later in life, you didn't grow up in a Catholic family, you say, hey, to the priest, I need to be baptized. And I'm fully all in with you guys. I believe everything that you believe. So you're baptized into the faith of the Catholic Church. You believe that baptism is a sacrament. You believe that you have to do it in order to get saved. You're making a testimony of unity and oneness with the Catholic Church. Then let's say you study your Bible for a while and you show up at Fellowship Bible Church and you get convicted like, oh my, I don't believe the proper stuff. I wasn't taught right. I now believe in the Gospel as it's written in Scripture. Salvation by faith alone. Then, the person comes to me and says, should I be baptized? My answer is yes. Clearly, you should be baptized. You were baptized under false doctrine, false pretenses, false information, you know, all of that stuff. So, uh, and I wouldn't call it a re-baptism either. Uh, like somebody say, well, why? what are you Anabaptists? You know, that means re-baptized, again baptizers, you know. What's that all about? And that was a problem in church history, by the way. You know, so if you're baptized as an infant, then the Anabaptists come along and say, no, you've got to be baptized as an adult after your profession of faith. That's the only valid baptism. That's the only one that Scripture and God would recognize. This, being sprinkled as an infant doesn't do anything at all. So, good question. Now, I have another question for you. All right? Let's set that aside. New thing, new topic, all right? So here's the question. Uh, I was, and I'll, I'll give you this kind of scenario that brought me to this question. I have studied a number of times the book of Acts. 
And I've looked at uh, a couple times before, about five years ago and then about two and a half years ago, and now I've revisited it again. I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but I'm hoping my studies get better each time. Um, looking at the book of Acts in terms of the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. There are numbers of them and very interesting sermons, not only for you know a pastor like me who is giving sermons all the time, but for you too, I think. One of the things, and, and so I studied um, all of those sermons this week. I spent quite a number of hours on this and I'm not even going to tell you how many there are because I'd have to go through and count, but they're sprinkled throughout the whole book. And I can give you that information sometime. But I have enough information here to probably give two or three messages. And we only have about five, ten minutes left here. But what I wanted to do was just take a subset of the results of my study and ask you if you could think about this topic. In the sermons and acts, and also in other places in the New Testament, for example, the book of Hebrews is a, is a wonderful example. I think Hebrews, although it's written, I think it might well have been, uh, in part at least, a, an oral sermon delivered to a group of Hebrew Christians or professing Christians. And in that sermon, the apostle, like in the book of Acts, uses Old Testament texts one after the other. And I wondered if you would be able to... Well, let me, let me before I say the question. These guys had a command of the Old Testament Scriptures or what they knew as their Bible, the Word of God. They had a command, an expertise in that. So my question to you is, how, how are you doing in terms of your command of Old Testament texts of Scripture? Not all of them. Okay, I'm going to make your job easier. Ones that you might use in evangelism for lost people. Okay? These guys used Old Testament texts right and left. They flowed off of their tongue, uh, off of their pen, as they, as they recorded. Uh, for, for Acts, really it was mostly, all these were verbal sermons. And Luke writes them down for our benefit. So, if I were to give you a blank piece of paper and say to me, just write 10 or 12 Old Testament texts just their addresses. You know, you don't have to write them all out. You can if you want. Ten or twelve Old Testament texts that you would use to assist in evangelism. What would those texts be? What would those texts be? And then, of course, with the address, I'd like to know what aspect of the Gospel that would be supporting or what truth that would be uh, giving to us. Okay? What do you think? Anybody have any ideas? Just throw out there an Old Testament text that you can think of and, and 
preaching the gospel, or maybe you think of from the book of Acts that was quoted there. In fact, you can turn your Bible there if you want. This is an open book quiz. But notice, one second, notice that I say it's an open book quiz, but you may not have an open book when you're speaking one-to-one with somebody. And it's good to have a few of these things stored away, hidden in your mind, hidden in your heart, so that you can share them with other people. Off the cuff. Okay, so Kevin has something? Yes, Isaiah 53 is one that you must have in your arsenal. Okay, you must have that in your toolbox, as it were, as you minister the gospel. Now, uh, it may be a little bit big to say Isaiah 53. Most of us probably don't have the whole chapter memorized or broken down into subsections. Um, I did list uh, in my list of 27 Old Testament texts, so I made myself do more than 10 or 12, um, was I uh, had Isaiah 53 somewhere in here. Yeah, um, number 15 on my list, but Isaiah 53 is actually mentioned in Acts chapter 8. You remember, we talked about this, the Ethiopian official happened to be reading in Isaiah 53 when Philip came along. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, of whom does this man speak, of himself or some other man? And so Philip began at that place. And what does the text of Scripture say he did? Began at that place in Isaiah 53 and did what? Anybody know? What did he preach? What was the summary of what of what Philip preached to the Ethiopian? It's not a hard answer here. It's kind of obvious, but we have the, we have the gospel on the table here. Um, very close. Listen to this. Acts eight thirty five. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture, at Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. Obviously, the the Gospel and the Gospel's center focus is on Jesus. So we have Isaiah 53. um, And 53... Oh, by the way, this was kind of exciting. Uh... I kind of get into this stuff if you never noticed before. Uh, in this Acts 8 passage, um, verse 33. Remember we, we looked at Isaiah 53 before and we said uh, we looked at this passage that had to do with his justice being taken away and so on. Uh, he was oppressed and afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Oh, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? Acts 8 gives us the insight that 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 passage is kind of confusingly written. He was taken from prison and judgment. It sounds like he was taken out of those things. He was delivered from them. In fact, in Acts 8.33, he clarifies that. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. That's what that passage means. It's not that he was taken away from those things. Those things took him away in oppression. They oppressed him. On injustice, we looked at that uh, in the the Gospels, injustice and so on, 
took him away and uh, led him into prison and judgment, as it were, confinement and and uh, condemnation, as opposed to es- letting him escape from those things. But anyway, uh, that's Acts uh, 53.8, where the Ethiopian official was reading when Philip came up to him. That's Isaiah 53. Now, that's one. What other Old Testament text? Yes, Christy. Isaiah 9.6, okay, now that I don't believe is used in the book of Acts, but that's fine because we're broadening our scope from just the book of Acts. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, his name will be called, and then we have the pairs of names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of his increase in government. of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with justice and judgment. So, uh, speaking of the deity of Christ and a number of other things too. I mean, if you want to talk about the kingdom, the bunch there, the fact that he's the son, the fact that his coming was predicted centuries before he came, uh, Isaiah 7.14 also is a common one. A kind of These are two Christmas verses kind of uh, about the virgin birth of Christ predicted long before it ever occurred. So we certainly could use those in our, in our evangelism. Anybody else have a verse they might use from the Old Testament? Now, one second, Ben. I, I think, Dan, did you have one? Genesis 3.15, okay, the Proto-Evangelium as it's called, the early promise of the Gospel. That's way back. Ben? Right, so the, the question here was what did Ben say? Ben is referring to Genesis 1.1, which sounds super obvious, but he is well pointed out that you have two basic groups of people. And this is evidenced in the book of Acts, actually, very interestingly. Paul starts and Peter and James are ministering initially in a Jewish context. And in the Jewish context, they can make certain assumptions all the Jews believe God created the heavens and the earth. And they believe they're supposed to know the law and follow the law and the Sabbath and, and all those things. They have some basic instruction and in morality, the Ten Commandments and so on. That's one group. And in those sections of the book of Acts, from chapter 2 through about chapter 12 or 13, there are many, many quotations from Old Testament texts. Because the Apostle Paul, I think, recognizes when I'm preaching to the Jews, we have a common substrate upon which to build a theology going forward of Christ. And what he would do is he would go to those places and he would preach Christ to them by showing that in the Old Testament, the Christ had to suffer and then be glorified. And then he would take that and connect it, draw kind of a thick line with an arrow, and say, that stuff happened to this man named Jesus, and we are eyewitnesses of that. 
you can do the same thing for anybody who will listen. Say, here's the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. His, his suffering, His death, His burial, His resurrection, glorification. And now look, hundreds of years later, this guy Jesus came along and He did A, B, C, D, E, and F. History. And there are eyewitnesses that observe that. This Jesus is the Christ. But, when you come to Acts 13, 14, 15, 17 especially, 18, uh, and then until 27, 28 when he's, Paul's dealing with Jews again, interestingly, you see very little extensive quotations of the Old Testament. And Ben's point is that when you minister to people with no connection to the Old Testament, Greeks as they're called, or Gentiles in the, in the Bible, Today, secularists, atheists, you have to start, as he says, at square one. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because God created you, you've got a problem. (laughs) A sin problem and a judgment problem and all of that. And so, Paul starts in Acts 17 at the Areopagus with the Greeks, the philosophers there, and says, listen, think about it. You know that none of these idols that you have statues to created this world or created you. But there is a God who did create. And I'm going to tell you about Him. And then I'm going to tell you about His Son. And I'm going to tell you about your sin. And then he ends up saying, and now God commands all men everywhere to repent. So he has to start at a different starting point than he does with ministering to the Jewish people. So I saw, I noticed that very same thing, Ben, that you've indicated in the ministry as Acts progresses, remember, it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? The uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul's going off to the Gentiles and he has to, say, shift his tactics a little bit because now you've got people, they don't believe, you know, say it colloquially, they don't believe nothing. Okay? They don't believe anything. I mean, they think they've come out of the primordial slime. What foolishness. But you have to start them at ground zero and say, no, there was no such thing as a primordial slime. God created the heavens and the earth and then He formed and filled them over six days and rested on the seventh day. And you're the result of God's divine creative activity. You're responsible to your Creator. So, we're past time. We've got to stop. Yes, and one more. Yes, Daniel 9.26 is also in my list as well as Daniel 7.13 uh, and 14. Daniel 9, a great prophecy about the timing of the coming of the Messiah. Well, uh, this is going to take us some more time to go through, so I'm going to put a little note here to say continue next time. We uh, have, have started into it quite well, but there are dozens of texts in the Old Testament that we should be familiar with for evangelism, and your mind can do it, okay? You just have to work at it, okay? When you first start on a project like that, you might be overwhelmed. But if you think about it, there are a lot of things that you know that uh, came by repetition and by practice over years, and you just have them now, okay? If I tell you to turn in your Bible to one of the 66 books, you can probably find it, right? But when you were five years old, that was a bit of a tough challenge, (laughs) And similarly, we need to have a better command of our Old Testament so that we can witness better to the lost people that we encounter. Okay, Let's pray. Father, we ask that You will watch over our, uh, the results of our study 
studies this morning as we looked at these Old Testament texts and also at the differences between Protestant and Catholic doctrine. We ask that these things will be useful for our edification or sanctification. And Lord, that you'll keep us humble in these matters. Help us to master the Old Testament text that we might use it in evangelism. We look forward to studying that a little bit more the next time we have opportunity. In Christ's name, amen.